Hello, and welcome to another edition of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm not going to jump into my co-host right now because I'm actually doing some things here as far as uh, my NDI source. So I'm uh, muting some stuff that didn't want to mute beforehand. So just give me one second, guys. All right, Paul, go ahead, man. Uh, introduce yourself here. Well, I mean, everybody already knows me who watches the show. But, yeah, good to be back with another episode. Awesome, awesome. So we got an awesome debate today for you guys. We got a um, Caleb Jackson who's been on the show before. Everybody knows David Johnson. I also host Skeptics and Seekers with him as well. So how are you two doing? Good. Good. Now I am. <laughs> All right. So I, I just got a question. We got two new guests. Um, we've got Matthew Taylor and Aaron Aquinas. So, uh, guys, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourselves, and uh, I'll start with Matthew. Hello. Thank you, uh, David. It's nice to be on your show. I've been a listener for yours for more than a year, I think. And people who don't know me, I am one of the co-hosts of the Still Unbelievable podcast. Awesome. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, uh I am a fairly newcomer to the YouTube scene. Uh, I have my own, both YouTube and Facebook. It's just Aaron Aquinas. I just talk about various different theological topics on occasion. So nothing too specific. Awesome, awesome. So David, I'm going to turn it over to you to get this format going so I can monitor uh, this live stream. So go for it. Yeah, all right. So the topic for the debate is going to be, uh, is there historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ? And the format we've got is uh, two opening statements, so uh, two from each participant. Uh, there's going to be eight minutes uh, each, so that'll be 16 minutes for both sides. Then we're going to have 10-minute cross-examinations, again, one for each side. And then we'll just have 20 minutes of free dialogue after that, uh, followed by four-minute uh, closing statements, and we'll have, again, one for each member. And uh, so without further ado, I'm going to turn this a over to actually, you, Caleb. Actually, I've got to get, get some more ado in there. Um, so did you say eight minutes per side? Eight minutes it's per person. Different. Okay, so it's going to be 32 minutes. Right, 16 minutes for each side. Uh, well, sorry, each side will have 16 minutes. Uh, okay. Each person giving right. an eight-minute opening statement. Sorry if I wasn't right. clear on that. But uh, yeah, so uh, Caleb, Caleb, we're going to turn this over to you for your eight-minute opening statement. All right, thank you, David. Yeah, so as I've been on the show before, uh, I'm an author. Uh, I've written a book on the resurrection, which is available on Amazon for those who want it. Uh, I'm almost finished my second book on theodicy, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, for your audience who doesn't know, the reason my camera looks jacked up like this is because I was having technical difficulties. So hopefully none of those will happen uh, for the rest of the show. Anyway, I'm happy for all this being here, um, David and Matthew. Um, I know Matthew didn't join you at the last minute, but it's still nice to have you all. So I'm going to cut to the chase and try to give more of the historical argument. And I know Aaron is going to give more of an analytical, philosophical uh, argument in favor of the resurrection. So uh, to start off, uh, David Johnson will probably be happy to know that I'm not going to use Bayes' theorem because I know he's not a fan of that and I'm not a math person. So there you go. Um, but I do want to start with 
um, not what's a minimal facts argument, which is what most people do, but with a reverse argument of looking at why would they have the belief in starting in reverse. So uh, when we look and ask, why would these disciples, including some of Jesus' enemies, sincerely believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead? Because Jews at that time only believed that a resurrection could occur at the end of time during judgment. Prior to then, the deceased would exist as only as disembodied spirits. As Joaquin Jeremies argues, quote, ancient Judaism did not know of an anticipated resurrection as an event in history, end quote. Such a strange belief that Jesus had been raised requires a historical explanation. What could cause such a belief to originate? I will argue that only two plausible historical explanations require that to explain this belief. One, that there was an empty tomb or at least a missing body of Jesus, and two, that there were lifelike postmortem appearances of Jesus. Any other combination, I think, fails at explaining the data satisfactorily. For, ex for instance, take each one individually. An empty tomb by itself would not lead to belief in resurrection. It would lead to belief that the body had been stolen or moved. We see this in Matthew 28, 13 through 15, and John 20, 15 as well. Likewise, appearances by themselves in the form of visions would only lead to belief that Jesus had been uh, a ghost or a spirit, not that he had been bodily raised from the dead. When it comes to bereaving individuals, it is common to see visions of deceased loved ones, but they don't come to believe that the corpse is literally walking out of the grave. Uh, we see this in Acts 12, for example, where Rhoda thinks that she has seen Peter after his death. Her friends tell her that she's crazy and that she was just seeing a spirit, not the, that Peter had been resurrected. Even if we combine visions with an empty tomb, this would at most lead to belief that Jesus had been assumed into heaven, like Enoch or Elijah, and in some cases, Moses. There's also pagan and Jewish and Christian literature that talks about deceased people being assumed into heaven uh, bodily. So this would be the more likely scenario, especially with the apocalyptic expectation. So I would argue that these two uh, factors are necessary to explain the rise in belief of Christianity among these Jews, that there was an empty tomb and bodily appearances. As N.T. Wright argues, quote, in order to explain historically how the early church came to hold the belief that they did about those mutations in resurrection faith, we have to say at least this, that the tomb was empty and that the disciples really did see and talk with someone who gave every impression of being Jesus. This case is made even stronger when we consider the independent data. For example, just consider the empty tomb. I will give four arguments for why I think it's historically plausible. One, it's sounded in early material like Mark's passion story, and it's implied in 1 Corinthians 15. The Gospels also have independent sources for it. For example, even though Matthew uses Mark as a source, 75% of Matthew's vocabulary in that chapter is independent of Matthew, and so it indicates a different source altogether. Secondly, Mark's empty tomb story lacks extensive legendary or theological reflections, which we'd expect from an invented story. Thirdly, Mark reports that women were the first witnesses to the tomb, which is unlikely to be legendary because women at that time period, with a few exceptions, were generally considered to be irrational and non-credible witnesses in that Jewish culture. It's importantly, point four, Jews practiced a tradition of secondary burial of the bones, which also applied to executed Jewish criminals. This means that Jesus's tomb would almost certainly have been revisited within a year, making any claims of bodily resurrection inevitably falsifiable. These arguments and others are why the empty tomb is accepted by a majority of New Testament scholars, liberal or conservative, with Mark Waterman, Waterman writing in his dissertation that, quote, not a few, but rather a majority of contemporary scholars believe that there is some historical kernel in the empty tomb tradition, end quote. For the second point, the, uh, the post-mortem appearances, there's a consensus that these occurred among scholars, and virtually no one denies that they happened. Of course, this is reported in 1 Corinthians 15, which lists all the uh, witnesses out, including Paul and the disciples, 
but I won't read that out for the sake of time and because I'm sure everyone here has already heard it uh, at certain. After laying out these factors, I think the weight of the historical evidence presents a very compelling case for the probability of the resurrection, especially in conjunction with the background evidence that Jesus considered himself to be some kind of prophet who saw himself as an agent of God. Now, because I believe that we have good reasons to believe God exists and that Jesus affiliated himself with this God, I argued that the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to vindicate his radical claims is true when put in conjunction with the historical evidence and the background context. Other naturalistic explanations fail to account for the, all of the historical data and cannot, in my opinion, make predictions that co-align with the historical information presented. Within the few minutes I have left, let me quickly address some of the points that one of my opponents, David Johnson, has raised in the past. In his debate with Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, as well as on his podcast, David has claimed that Jesus' resurrection was not unique because there are, and I'm paraphrasing him here, about nine or ten different resurrection stories in the Bible. He points to stories like Lazarus, the risen saints in Matthew 27, and the prophet Elijah raising a child from the dead. Here, I think David equivocates the word resurrection and makes a category error. A resurrection is a permanent raising of a group of people in a transformed and glorified body. In contrast, David is more referring to a revivification, which is a temporary raising of an individual in their original normal body. The person would eventually die again. This distinction is seen when Paul says that Jesus was, quote, the first fruits of those who had died. If Jesus was not believed to be the first one resurrected, then Paul's statement makes no sense. Again, as Joaquin Jeremy says, quote, certainly resurrections of the dead were known, but these always concern resuscitations, the return to earthly life. Nowhere does one find in the literature anything comparable to the resurrection of Jesus, end quote. David's also raised a couple other objections that I won't have time to get into, such as the fact that the stories have lots of uh, incongruencies and inconsistencies in them, the fact that history can't really report on the, it can't prove or disprove miracles, uh, and the fact that it is rational to disbelieve the resurrection, all of which are very interesting points. Uh, within these, with these objections considered and will be discussed later on, I assume, I believe that if one looks at the evidence with both an open mind and in the context of the background information, then I believe that he is rational in affirming that history that Christianity is true and that there is indeed historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you so much for that, Caleb. All right, we're going to transition over to you, Aaron, and I'll let you give your eight-minute opening statement. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to take a much different approach. Um, I'm going to start by saying I'm not an expert on anything. I'm not a historian. I have no credentials that makes me qualified to speak authoritatively on anything. So anything I say, I want to try to say out of that understanding that nothing that I am about to say or even anything that Caleb said is spectacularly original. It's nothing we just plucked out of the air. This has already been done by other people. So what we're going to try to do is appropriate it into our case on why we think this would count as historical evidence. And I want to start by very specifically identifying the topic. Is there historical evidence for the resurrection? It's actually not saying is there sufficient historical to warrant belief that Christianity is true. It's not saying, is there sufficient evidence that it would be rational to believe in it? It's not even saying, is the resurrection true? It's just asking, is there historical evidence? Now, that on its own is a fairly low bar because the way, at least in the very broad sense that we're going to interpret what it means to be just evidence, is any set of like circumstances, facts, or anything we can infer that would increase the probability, whether Bayesian or not, of the intrinsic thing we're talking about than it would have been in the absence of those things. And I would like to think, which I hope would be the premise of 
that we're disagreeing on here that this is, I don't know, fairly uncontroversial whether there's any evidence. I think what's more debatable is whether there's sufficient evidence. And I think that's implicit in the talk, and that's what Caleb said. So with that, I'm going to take more of an approach. I'm going to be a little more charitable to the topic and approach it like that. Is it sufficient to warrant some kind of belief? Um, now, I think that one's obviously a lot more um, controversial because whether there, I, I think even Apologia in his channel, he even said that it's not quite right to approach say that there's no evidence at all. Because for something to have like no indication for anyone to believe, we can easily come up with a proposition about Jesus, like a lot of the apocryphal gospels do, that really nobody believes today. Well, why is that the case? Because it's just being plucked out of the air for the most part. These are the real theological embellishments. So from that side, I'm going to approach a little more about the concept of the standard of evidence that we're taking. So Caleb listed some specific things that we believe are facts surrounding Jesus's life before we get to the resurrection. Now he's taking a backwards approach, but the specific facts that we're using to either infer it or find it rational to believe, it's important to remember that these things in and of themselves are not supernatural events and have nothing to do with whether Christianity is true. So whether Jesus existed or not, doesn't Christianity doesn't have to be true for that to be the fact. So there's one. It depends on how far back you want to go. Was Jesus actually killed by the Romans? If that's fact, that has nothing to do with whether Christianity is true or not. You can kind of keep taking certain steps toward the resurrection. And what we're going to find at some point is where exactly that line is between our team and the disagreeing team. Like, it, are, do we agree on something about the facts of Jesus? Do, do, can we at least agree that people believe Jesus rose from the dead? I'm, I, I'd like to think we believe that. Uh, but there are actually people who will, will formulate ways out of the, the facts of the resurrection, whether it because they're avoiding the conclusion or for other reasons. So I want to keep in mind that we're going to reveal, I'd like to think we're going to agree on some basic facts concerning who Jesus was, whether he existed, whether people believed in certain facts about what he did, and so on. So that will be, I'll let my opponents present their case to see exactly where that line is. Now, um, when it comes to the degree of the adherence of the historical facts surrounding Jesus, the ones that we're kind of starting with are the ones that Caleb presented. If we have to take a few steps backward, we'll revisit that in the rebuttals. Now, with that, an important thing to consider is the criteria of authenticity that's often referred to. Uh, I won't lay out an entire list of things that usually a historical methodology will take in order to establish certain facts. Caleb touched on them implicitly a little in his opening statement, so I'll let that stand there. Now, an important thing to consider when we're talking about whether it's rational to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, this, the very specific proposition that is being suggested is the supernatural event and whatever philosophical background you need to believe that. It's not saying did Jesus rise naturally from the dead. This is probably something we've all heard before, but I think it gets lost in all of the gobbledygook during the debates is that that's not the case. And um, I like to think a majority of the philosophical presuppositions embedded in the disagreement comes back to that proposition that we're not arguing for. So I want to keep that in the forefront. I'll probably have to say that again at some point in the debate, but let's hope not. And I might not use my entire eight minutes because I think the groundwork was laid pretty well by Caleb, but I'll just keep in mind that the facts that we're talking about I'm going to start really, really far back. One, people believed in a person that is described 
currently as Jesus of Nazareth that he either existed and did certain things, was in certain locations geographically. Uh, maybe the next one is that Jesus actually existed. Maybe the next one is that Jesus presented himself in a certain messianic context that Caleb talked about. The next one would be that Jesus was actually crucified. Uh, the next one would be that he actually died from that crucifixion. The next one would be that he was actually buried in a tomb that would be publicly known. The next one would be that that tomb was found empty. The next one would be that there were um, experiences of appearances of him alive. And the next one would be that they actually believed in his resurrection, understood in a Jewish context. One of uh, There's going to be a line where they, they stop agreeing, and then that's actually where the debate needs to focus. All right. Thank you for those opening statements. Now we're going to move over to uh, the skeptical side, and I think it's going to be David Johnson starting us off with his eight-minute opening statement. Thank you, and uh, a pleasure to be on the show again. Welcome, David. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Um, so, where to, where to begin? I'm, uh, I, I feel like there should be a two-David limit. Uh, so we're going to have to get rid of you, Russell. Um, where was I? I, I'm thinking, I'm intrigued by, uh, um, your, your methodology, um, that you just mentioned how, how far back we go. So I will go ahead and reveal to this audience something that I don't, uh, generally talk about, uh, in these discussions because it's, it's really irrelevant, but I actually don't believe in the birth. So you didn't go all the way back to the birth, and uh, I don't I don't believe in that because the Jesus of the Bible was born of a virgin, um, and I don't believe that anyone was born of a virgin. <laughs> so uh, we have a we have a problem before we get to uh, some of those other facts. I also want to uh, join you in saying, uh, yeah, let's dispense with some of the um, sophomoric definitions of what evidence is. Uh, we've, we've had this debate for a long time. It's a 2000 year old debate. I think that we skeptics know what Christians mean by evidence. Uh, and so I want to just affirm in the, in the positive, there is definitely evidence for uh, historical evidence for the resurrection. Let me say that again, there is definitely historical evidence for the resurrection. Now, I also believe that there is definitely historical resurrection for alien abductions. Uh, so before uh, this podcast, I, um, I brushed up on alien abductions, one of, uh, one of my guilty pleasure uh, topics. Alien abductions are firmly believed by millions of people. Uh, and I don't know the numbers of people who claim to have been uh, abducted, but the numbers are are huge. Uh, and wh why would we uh, say that there's evidence for alien abductions? Well, uh, we've got eyewitness testimony. I don't even believe that we have eyewitness testimony for the for the Gospels. But even if you gave it, we've got more eyewitness testimony and better eyewitness testimony. Uh, for alien abductions, uh, we've got documentary evidence. Uh, we've got more documentary evidence uh, for alien abductions uh, than we do uh, the resurrection. Uh, we we have documentary evidence coming out of the wazoo. 
what else do we have? We have changed lives. Uh, we have people who are willing to commit reputational martyrdom for their belief in alien abductions. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's fairly strong uh, testimony. And we have these people alive today. We can interview them today. We have interviewed them, <laughs> and uh, and we continue to do so, uh, and collect these stories. And so, uh, do we have historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? We most certainly do, but it pales in comparison uh, to the evidence that we have of alien abductions. We have the same kind of evidence, only better. And yet, I dare say, the majority of Christians, including myself, do not, in fact, believe in alien abductions. And so it really does come down to uh, this question of not whether there is historical evidence uh, for a thing, but whether that evidence is uh, worthy of uh, a, a changed life in some way, uh, staking one's claim in a belief uh, in, a, in a thing. So before I pass it over uh, to my partner, I just want to uh, maybe introduce uh, the topic that I think he's going to be focusing on, which is the difficulty of history. And I just wanted to use as an example the 2020 presidential election. Who won the 2020 presidential election. Well, forget history or the future. We can't even agree on that today. The election was three weeks ago. We can't agree on it today. I watched a 90-minute presentation uh, from Donald Trump on Fox News last night in its entirety, plus commentary. And the president of the United States, the sitting president of the United States, declared that he has won and by a lot. And he did this several times, and his supporters uh, backed him up in this. I can find testimony of people who say that Donald Trump won. I can find documentary evidence uh, that Donald Trump won. Uh, I can find people who are willing to commit uh, reputational martyrdom to suggest that Donald Trump won. This is what we have today. 2,000 years from now, what will they say about who won the 2020 election if we're using these things as historical evidence? I have no idea. In fact, I'm not, I don't have no idea today. I do have this idea, though, in conclusion. It seems to be a particular type of Christian uh, in America, who is insisting that the facts say that Donald Trump won. Now, if this is how Christians parse the facts right here and now before our eyes, imagine how they might have done it 2,000 years ago. Matt? Thank you, David. And thank you, David, for welcoming me onto this podcast. It's a uh, it's a pleasure. Um, just a quick uh, comment before I uh, consume my eight minutes. Uh, I've gone on record of saying I don't do debates. I've gone on record of saying I dislike the debate format. And that is true. 
but when David asks me in a very sweet email, would I like to join him? Apparently, I'm incapable of saying no. So this is going to be fun. This is going to be interesting for me. But this is a pinnacle of how strange 2020 has become for me. Um, and so I will enter into the spirit of this as best as I can. And I look forward to a stimulating conversation uh, afterwards. So, determining what has happened in the past can be difficult. I'll illustrate by telling a personal story. I have a memory of my grandfather telling me that he was born in India in a room that overlooked the Taj Mahal. I thought that this was a very cool fact to know about my grandfather and I repeated it often growing up. After he died, I found out that the birth details of those born in India were accessible via a record search. And so I contacted the organization involved, giving them what information I could. Now imagine my surprise when I found out that my grandfather's place of birth was in a completely different region of India. And the anecdote that I had long been familiar with was in fact a lie. Now my grandfather was a trustworthy person. He was not known for telling lies. He was an upstanding member of his community. He had been secretary of his local chapel for as long as I could remember. How could this grandparent, a sincere man of God who I adored and loved, have told me a lie? <coughs> Sorry. Maybe he didn't lie. Maybe I misremembered what he had said to me. Could it be that he had simply spent part of his youth in a building as described? Maybe. But I also know that his father died in World War I before he was even born, and that it wasn't long before his mother returned to Scotland with him and his elder sibling. Which means it's actually unlikely that my grandfather ever saw the Taj Mahal, let alone spent time in a property that overlooked him. Could it be that my grandfather had misremembered a story that had been told to him? Maybe. But I have no way of checking because there is nobody alive that I can ask. So all I am left with is a cool sounding anecdote that is utter fiction. This is the challenge we face when investigating history. Stories and anecdotes come to life. Some will be true. Some will be fiction. And more likely, the majority will contain elements of both. It's true that my grandfather was born in India, just not in the location that I once believed. Ancient history is likewise riddled with cool sounding fiction. Narratives about individuals and events often contain entire passages that are invented by the author. Today, we have no way of questioning those involved. And so disseminating the fact from the fiction is sometimes impossible. Sometimes the best we can do is lay out what these ancient documents say and advise caution to all readers. Pick any apparently historical account from 2000 years ago and some readers will believe fictionalized accounts and some readers will be skeptical of true accounts. About the only thing that we can be sure of is no single individual will be able to tell you with 100% accuracy which are true and which are not. Which brings me to the Gospels and their accounts of Jesus. Is it reasonable to suggest the same caution when viewing these accounts as history? Yes, of course. These are human accounts written at a time when we know it was common to invent passages about a person's life. It is, is it possible for us to easily know which are the true accounts? Of course not. 
Is there reason to doubt some parts of the gospel narratives? Yes, the earliest gospel mark contains a well-known ending passage that is considered fiction. It is also known that there is a progression of the character of Jesus through the gospels with each later account. Should the knowledge that the resurrection is not described in Mark but appears in later Gospels give us cause to be sceptical? Yes, it should. History is difficult, especially history that, is, that involves events that centre on supernatural acts. We are right to be. Are we right to be sceptical of them? But until we can know which is fact and which is fiction, we must consider them all evidence for the events they portray. Does that mean that I acknowledge there is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, yes, in the sense that it's written about that it happened. In the same way that I have uttered evidence that my grandfather was born in a room that overlooked the Taj Mahal. The better question is how much validity do we give to what is written that we are unable to confirm via other means? And my answer is not very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for those opening statements. Uh, at this time, we're going to give the affirmative team uh, an opportunity to kind of cross-examine the skeptics. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how that's working. I think it's just the two of you kind of it's going to be a little a little informal, but the two of you will be asking your questions and you have 10 yeah. minutes for that. Yeah, the, the, okay. the, the format is is, yeah, both of the both of you guys will get turns to ask them questions. You guys do it the way you want to. But you're asking the questions, so it's you're the dominant in in that area. Uh, they're answering questions, and then it's going to be vice versa. All right. Okay. Yes. We're, we're am, I, am I on again? Yeah, okay. I can hear you. All right. Good. Um, we'll start with you guys uh, on the affirmative. So, do we just take turns asking them questions, or whatever you got? However, you guys want to work it out. I guess. Uh, I say, old skeptics yeah. and seekers, come at me, bro. <laughs> Aaron, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can throw a few out there. Uh, some of these will be just direct questions, and some of these will be more clarification talking points, I guess you could call them. So the first thing I noted is that finding out exactly where that line was that was a part that was a point I really tried to press. And he mentioned that he didn't even believe that Jesus was born. He said it like that, but he was referring to the virgin birth, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to start by clarifying some and make sure that we understood each other when he pushed that line i guess back a further step because you could keep going right was jesus even considered a human uh or, or did humans uh exist at the time i mean i assume we believe that right so how far do you want to go so we're, we're we're somewhere around jesus's birth where i wasn't referring to things christians believe i was referring to things that we can be we can consider we know historically about jesus now maybe you guys don't think we know anything historically about jesus and I'm going to give you a chance to speak to that. But when we're talking about, let's say, the birth of Jesus, let's just say for the sake of argument, we believe Jesus existed, right? So he was clearly born. So that could be considered a historical fact. The virgin birth wasn't a part of the case of historical facts we were presenting there. Um, so even if we can see that the fact that he was born a virgin maybe can't be established historically speaking in the same way the other facts we mentioned are, maybe if you're taking some kind of methodological naturalism, similar to the resurrection, none of the facts we presented that the virgin birth would be considered are themselves supernatural. So are we, are we saying that it wasn't historical that Jesus was even born at all? Or are you just referring to the virgin birth that Christians believe as a, 
as a religious belief. I will have to say that I did not hear most of your statement, but I think I got oh, the fine. gist of it. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, it went kind of robotic. Did anyone else hear that or was it just me? Must have been just you. I, 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 I just heard you, David. I can, I can summarize it a little smaller. No, no, no. I I, okay. No, it's okay. I, I got the gist of it. Cool. <laughs> and the um, answer would be uh, complicated. So what do we agree on about the existence of Jesus? Uh, if you say, was there a man named Jesus who was born from the regular uh, sexual relationship between a man and a woman, I could say probably. Uh, Jesus was a fairly common name, and we can we can probably start there. But I think that we already get off the boat uh, when it comes to Christians, because they would not say Jesus was born of the natural sexual relationship between a man and a woman. So I don't think that you can just hand wave away and say, well, we got this person who existed. No, he doesn't exist at all if we don't agree on the mechanism of his existence so you know was was he beamed on to earth from a spaceship <laughs> you know is that no we we have to have some kind of um baseline for that and so whereas i know that it would be convenient just to skip all of the argumentation to say well he existed so we agree on that no i think how he existed is an important part of the equation and i don't think we can skip it okay um i think you're right in terms of matter of fact you're right. Like whether Jesus was born of a virgin or not, either is true or false. And whether that is true or false in the broader context of who Jesus was could matter. But I'm saying what we can establish historically, that I, that's why I refer to as the criteria of authenticity. I, I'm not aware of any one that deals in the historicity of Jesus that presents the virgin birth as a fact as being historically established. I, maybe someone exists. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, we're not presenting that today. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's, it's relevant to my question and either of our cases, well, that, but it's relevant only when it, in re, uh, regard to which Jesus are we talking about? So, so if on. we're just talking about a generic Jesus who was an apocalyptic teaching Jew in the hillside of Galilee, uh, maybe I have no problem with that proposition whatsoever. But that is not the Jesus that any Christian I know is talking about. Yeah, but we're not talking right now, just establishing what we can know historically about Jesus. We're not talking about Christianity being true. That's not, we're not there yet. We're just talking about what can we know historically about Jesus. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll concede now that the virgin birth is not a part of the case we're presenting here. We didn't offer that as a historical fact. So let, let's take, for example, that Jesus was crucified under the Romans. Is that, would you consider that a historical fact? I think a lot of people were crucified under the Romans and probably at least two that we know about uh, Jesus around that time. So uh, again, this, this is a definite maybe, but are we talking about the same guy? In the, uh, again, I, I just feel like you're, you're wanting to skirt the hard part here. And this is where, this is the, the particular brand of mythicism I have, which is not to simply deny everything that happened in the Gospels, but the claim of Christianity is of a particular person. It's, it's not a generic person. And I don't believe that person existed. Now, why do I say that? Because of their descriptions of that person. So there may be a person that 
kind of can be legendarily morphed into the person they're talking about. But the person they're talking about did not exist. So I can't just uh, beam him onto Earth and have him crucified and skip all of the details just to make the conversation easier. As much as I would like to. Okay, so maybe I'm not making as much sense in a straight path as I'm trying to. So if I understand the way you're understanding figures of antiquity, like would that same approach apply to whether or not a specific version of a person existed, like uh, Socrates? Was there different, like Socrates as this version didn't exist, but there was a person that it referred to, whether there were legendary tendencies that got into the accounts of him? Right, and I, I that confess the same way? This, this is a very challenging uh, question and one that I like to noodle about, <laughs> to be clear. So I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. But I am not aware that there are many versions of Socrates. Um, so I, I think, you know, when we say Socrates, we know who we're talking about. And the thing is, when we say Jesus... I think we know who we're talking about. And there there are certain descriptions of Jesus um, that when Christians talk about Jesus, we know who they're talking about. And if you remove enough of those descriptions, then you're not talking about the same person. So I don't think that you can have the Christian Jesus and the secular Jesus. He uh, Either Aaron, the Christian Aaron. Jesus exists or not. Can you hear me? Uh, Aaron, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you give him uh, an, another question, and then David, you can respond, and then I want to switch it over to Caleb and let Caleb ask some questions. All right? Sure. Yeah, I, I had a bit long list here, and obviously, I didn't want to go too far on any one point. Um, and I don't, not, I don't mean to take up the, all, all that time either. Yeah. I just have to. I have to be very clear about this because it's a it's a touchy subject. Yeah. The, the uh, way I guess we're just seeing it differently, which is fine. You know, there's going to be different ways to look at things, but it's more about we have certain, you know, data about a person and. They can include ranges of things that were true, ranges of things that were legendary embellishments. And that, that, I mean, that's just not the approach in terms of gathering historical information on whether we can know information about people, like, or even uh, Spartacus. There's plenty of legendary tendencies about Spartacus, but we can use what I referred to in my opening speech, criterions of authenticity from the data that we do have, whatever the historical records are, to say, what can we actually know from this historical criteria? And so the, the point I was trying to get at and the questions I was asking is, do can we know certain things? Where's the line that you would consider we can know from the historical criteria about the historical Jesus? Now, you don't have to have the entire thing in advance to say that it was this version of this person. You could start from the ground and say, what can we know? And then you can maybe something like the virgin birth would be... Um, you could consider that legendary. Say, okay, we don't know that, but we can know that he say he was crucified. Yeah, but I, I guess I get. So I, I, get one more I used question. to be. I used to be a preacher once upon a time, and I can. I can tell you that I, it, I would have found it impossible to deconstruct Jesus that way. The Jesus that rose from the dead is the Jesus that was born of a virgin. If the if Jesus was not born of a virgin, he did also did not rise from the dead. We're talking about a different guy. It, I can't yeah. deconstruct. Uh, well, these pieces over here are good. These pieces over there are not good. It's it's the same guy or it's no guy. Well, I, I was purely talking about what we can know historically from the historical criteria. I wasn't right, talking but, about what Christians... At some point, you're going to ask me to make a conclusion about um, a fact of matter that that is associated with a legendary figure. Or well, at least someone that if, I think... If you're saying I would ask you to believe in the biblical inerrancy of the virgin birth, I actually wouldn't. But 
talking about Meep specifically, I mean, I'm sure there are people that would, but I want to get the one last question in so, so Caleb can say something because I don't want to spend the entire time on that. Look, if you want shorter answers, uh, ask, yeah. ask Matt. He's very, very <laughs> it's all, well, Anyone can jump in and answer this. But, <laughs> My answer um, would just be ask David. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's good. Well, okay, I have a list. I'll just pick one more. Um, uh, I liked the alien analogy because I actually use alien analogies myself. That the, the idea that people believe that aliens abducted themselves uh, is similar to the fact that people believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I, if I, that's a quick summary of the point. Um, and the, the, I guess the question, if I, if I could form this into a question, if I understood it right, that alien abductions are not, we're saying that we're, we're not rational to believe in alien abductions, even just because people claim they had these experiences. And this is supposed to be, I guess, analogous to the eyewitness testimony of the, this is, I guess this is supposed to explain the resurrection appearances fact or so, you know, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use not rational. In fact, uh, when I was un unbelievable for the, uh, the last time I was on it, uh, I spent my opening statement, or at least part of my opening statement, uh, expressing uh, that I believe the uh, other side is rational uh, in their belief. Now, I could not get Jonathan McClatchy to reciprocate uh, this particular bit of generosity. <laughs> Um, but I don't believe that Christians are crazy because they believe in a resurrection and I don't. So it's not a matter of whether it's rational or irrational. It's a matter of whether it is, uh, convincing for a skeptic and whether a skeptic is, uh, irrational for not believing it in the same way that I don't believe that Christians are irrational for not believing it. I don't think that skeptics are irrational for, for not believing. It. I think I said that wrong, but you get the idea. Yeah, actually. Uh, um, I agree completely with that. And I'll, this will be my final statement on it is I take a different approach. Uh, and I mean, I can only speak for myself, uh, but I believe that there's reasons both in Christian tradition and even in the Christian scriptures to believe this. And I won't be able to unload all that here, but that's the only honestly bar I'm trying to get to is whether it's, it's like having rational permission is the evidence sufficient enough for it to be rational to believe in it, whether you have all the other background information or not. Yeah. And I don't, I, that's I, all I'm I, presenting. I think it, I think it is. Now we will, uh, you know, have some sparring on what we mean by rational, but I ultimately believe that people who believe in the resurrection, uh, feel like they have good cause. I understand their cause. Uh, I don't think that they're crazy, uh, for their cause, and I am troubled by the fact that they don't understand uh, that those of us who don't believe are also uh, rational uh, with that. So if it's just a question of rationality, you know, you and I can go retire right now and have supper. Um, and, and the others well, have, you know, I, I almost wanted to do that with the uh, first concession by both of you that there is historical evidence because, I mean, debate's over, right? But I, I was being more charitable because it kind of implicitly says, is it sufficient? And I'm taking it as being sufficient to be rational to believe because I don't right. believe it has to be compelling. So all I right, guys, all right, all right. I, I appreciate the banner, but we need to let uh, Caleb get some yeah. uh, questions in. We're already like pretty much at the ten minute mark here, but uh, Caleb, I'll, I'll let you get a couple of questions in here. Okay, I'll try to keep it fairly brief. Um, so I had both some for Matt and uh, David. First of all, David, I don't think you're rational for not believing the resurrection. So I'll throw that out there. I'll give you more credit than uh, McClatchy did. Um, so Matt. Uh, so you talked about a couple of things with history, which were interesting. Um, there was a couple of points I wanted to clarify on, and then uh, I think a question. So you said that uh, 
Mark's ending was added on, you mean verses 9 through 20, which, yes, uh, it is. The earliest manuscripts do not have that. But I think the important thing to know is that we are aware that it was added on. We know that that's not historical because we have methodologies to conclude that that was, in fact, not historical. Um, you also said, I think the resurrection was not in Mark. I, I, I'm assuming that the uh, appearances are not because obviously Jesus predicts yes, his re was, resurrection. Yeah, that was, that was me being goofy in my speaking. My apologies. Oh, I, and I, I know what you mean, because even the angel in uh, verse seven, I think it is, says, oh, Peter will go see him in Galilee. So it's at least implied um, there. But if you mean to the women, then that would be correct. So I just wanted to clarify a couple of things. Um, you mentioned history, and I think that's a very good point is that um, history is a tricky subject, but uh, at the same time, I think we can know certain things from history, and that's why I tried to, well, I didn't emphasize this in my opening, but that's why there are methodologies like multiple attestation, early attestation, uh, criterion of embarrassment, criterion of dissimilarity, so that, you know, when we look at ancient texts, we don't just sit there and just take a guess at, well, this probably is historical, well, this probably isn't, right? We have good ways of assessing. I mean, most of our records for, uh, example, I think the death of, C uh, of uh, Julius Caesar being stabbed are not contemporaneous or not overly early, but we still have good reason to think that he probably was. Same with the fire of Rome. We have lots of accounts that contradict each other a lot, but we can still think there probably wasn't a fire of Rome. So um, do you think that there are methodologies that we can use to figure out what parts probably are historical and what parts probably are not? Certainly, yes. Um, I guess the next question would be, you know, what are they and how specific do we need to be? There are met certainly methodologies which would help us to increase the probability of a certain passage being true. But I don't think without us actually being able to somehow recreate that event, I think you're, all you're doing is actually increasing probability. I don't think those methodologies would get you to absolute certainty. Right. I don't think anything in history is absolutely certain. And uh, that I wasn't trying to make that statement in my opening of being absolutely certain. Right. I think history is about probability. So I would agree with you there. We can't be absolutely certain that Caesar was stabbed by Brutus. We can't go back and see that ourselves. We can be pretty sure um, based on lots of things. We can be pretty sure that yeah. Nero was an emperor of Rome and stuff like that. Um, so I, th I think we have good reasons to talk about that. So I'm glad we agree. Um, now for David, uh, I like the alien analogy a lot. I would say a couple things that I'm not sure why it's, I, that I don't necessarily think it's entirely analogous. Um, he, he is right that we have contemporaneous eyewitness testimony of alien abductions. We do have that for at least Paul, and Paul did at least talk with Peter and James according to his own letters about that. So um, we do have eyewitness testimony. Admittedly, it's not going to be as contemporaneous, but then again, nothing in ancient history is contemporaneous. So you can say there's better evidence that Trump existed than Julius Caesar, but no one doubts Julius Caesar existed. So I'm not sure that it's a fair comparison either way. But a couple things is that I one thing I noticed is that the first alien abduction or the first popularized alien abduction that was reported was uh, in 1961 by Betty and Barney Hill, right? And the date is important because the 50s and 60s were a time where everyone was really into sci-fi movies and the Cold War and alien abduction or and aliens, you know, all that was very popular in media. And so I think Hot. that culture, what was that? Hot. <laughs> That's true as well. Lots of other drugs. Uh, but I think that cultural context really emphasizes the fact that our first alien abduction that was reported comes from a time in which people were really uh, into stuff like that, I think makes it a little bit suspicious. And so I think that that could be a prerequisite for psychological expectation. And that's why I did try to emphasize in the my opening argument why that uh, the belief that Jesus risen dead was so contrary to the cultural expectation. It's not what we expect. Um, another example would be in Matthew's uh, in Matthew 28. 
where Jesus is raised, uh, he looks very normal, which is weird because the resurrection predicted in the Old Testament in places like Daniel 12 talks about Jesus shining like a star. And, and Matthew in other places says that the resurrected will shine like the sun and they'll look like angels. So it's very strange that they would present Jesus in a way completely contrary uh, to how even Paul and some of the other gospels present him. So elements like that, I think, talk, uh, really emphasize expectation and psychological expectation. Another point I wanted to add was the physicality of it, which is why I mentioned the empty tomb. That's something that uh, at the time is like more concrete and not just testimonial. You could go and actually look. And a lot of archaeologists actually do think that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is possibly a good candidate for being the actual site of Jesus' tomb to this day. And so I think that we have that advantage over uh, the alien abductions. So I would say that the alien abductions do not meet the same criteria for expectation and don't meet the same criteria for the physicality and the falsifiability of it. I also would say that most people who see aliens have, again, are people who have that expectation, whereas you have people like Paul who were not believers originally and who did convert. So I think there are quite a few differences to kind of uh, question the analogousness, that's a word, uh, of the two. So. Okay, let's let the skeptics respond to that, and then uh, after that, we're just going to go right over to the skeptics asking their questions. Matt, I'll give you first bite of the apple. Um, I was expecting you to. Well, I'll be really glad to. You just yeah, may you not can... get it. You may not get back in. So okay, is... no, uh, you you go first. Now I'll shut you up if I need to say something. All right, all right, um, right. So if we had time to talk about this, I think I could um, refute your um, suggestion that it's not analogous uh, in your particular points, but we don't. And so I will just drop that there and uh, and we'll move on. And who knows, maybe we'll get another chance uh, to do that. Let me uh, ask you this, uh, Caleb. Uh, do you at least see uh, in the gospel stories where it looks like uh, Jesus is trying to set up uh, a situation where there would be doubt. Uh, he's not trying to make it a clean, straightforward, uh, uh, they killed me, I rose, uh, everybody knows it, and uh, I went to heaven. So one aspect of that in particular I will ask you about. Uh, Mark chapter 16, uh, verse 12 through 14, uh, really uh, mostly interested in verse 12, this is a, a very brief uh, story of the road to Emmaus, uh, the, the two disciples. I'm sure that you're familiar with that story. Uh, the Markan version of that has, uh, it starts that story by saying, Jesus changed his form. Uh, and so the reason given uh, that uh, these uh, two disciples on this road did not recognize him, is that Jesus changed his form. That's uh, that's Mark 16, 12. You can look that up for a few words. Uh, very straightforward. In uh, Luke 24, I want to say, uh, this is a much longer version of the story. And in that version, I, I want to say at least a couple of times, it, it makes an allusion to this, but it doesn't have Jesus changing his form at all. It has uh, the uh, their eyes were clouded or their eyes were covered uh in in some way the, the magic was he was causing them to to not see him properly uh so i'm not going to get into you know this discrepancy uh over how the magic happened 
but in both cases, what we have is Jesus doing something intentionally to make these people not recognize him. In fact, we can see that with every instance of an appearance, the first appearance, no one said, oh, Jesus, and ran up to him and hugged him. None of them recognized him. None of them believed it was him. And so he seemed to be trying on purpose uh, to, to make it a kind of a cloudy issue. Do you at least see where that would cast some um, reason for doubt then and now? You mean in the historicity of it or in the expectation element? I wasn't entirely sure what your point was. Well, so we're, we're talking about these uh, appearances of Jesus as historical evidence, but it's not played straight and clean as evidence. It's played where everyone who saw him didn't recognize him. Okay. Oh and, yeah, and we, and we read in the story that that was on purpose. So if we're if we're talking about historical evidences of his appearances, uh, it's shaky at best. It's a little bit like saying the shroud is great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, except all the tests uh, were either corrupted or show that it's a fraud. Uh, you know that's not great evidence then. And it seems like Jesus kind of likes to do this on purpose to make sure you don't have good evidence uh, for his resurrection appearances. I was just hoping that you would have some comment on that, at least see why that would begin to lay the skeptical groundwork. Yeah, okay, I think I see what you're saying. Just as a preface, uh, Mark 16, 12 is part of that later ending that was added on that I don't think is relevant because it wasn't part of the original text right. anyway. It's, but it's it is B, in it's BS crap, it, but I, I can tell you that uh, Everyone where I grew up in the, in the Bible Belt in Alabama, none of them would agree with that. So you go you go into one of those churches and you tell them uh, that uh, twelve verses in Mark are uh, are fraudulent. Uh, let's see let's see if you get out uh, with your entire suit on. I don't think he will. Well, that's fine. I, I'm I try to stick with more just what contemporary scholarship says, but that's not relevant because, as you said, Luke 24, and actually John 21 implies it too when it says uh, they didn't ask him who he was because they knew it was their Lord. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's interesting. And uh, when you said that none of the appearances have that, I think in Matthew 28, when the women see him, they immediately fall and worship him. So I think that's one of the instances where they actually do recognize him immediately. Although I think Mary Magdalene doesn't in John 20, but you could debate whether she was just crying hard and wasn't paying attention. But Putting all of that aside, um, I think that that could be for theological reasons as far as the idea that Jesus is hiding himself from people, that they don't recognize him because they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, and that him revealing himself to them is almost analogous to how uh, they were. it was revealed that he was, in fact, the Messiah and the Savior. So I think there's a little bit of uh, theological reasons. I also don't personally use Luke and John uh, in my case. I was trying to stick with Paul, Mark, and Matthew because I think those are just the earliest sources. And so, um, and since Matthew doesn't really have any of those elements, uh, except for the part where it says some doubted, but Jesus doesn't even try to relieve some of those doubts. Uh, so I, I think in but, most but of the cases- It does look like a, a, like a, a device, uh, a, um, a literary device. <laughs> More than more than a story that we use for historical evidence. I'm going to uh, turn it over to Matthew now and see if he has some cross examination that he would like to do because I can yeah. do this all day. Oh, I'm sure you could. My my shows my my shows used to go three and four hours, man. Uh, so. <laughs> I've listened to like two podcasts, so I'm aware. But... So about eight hours worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, not really sure what to ask. Uh, yeah, actually, I, you mentioned in during part of your your intro, Caleb, about you said the phrase this, the data needs uh, explaining. And uh, amongst that that data, you mentioned something about uh, the the empty tomb, but there presumably there are other things that you mean as well. When you use a phrase like this data needs explaining, what do you mean specifically and how much um, certainty do you have about the data that you're talking about? So when I was referring to the data that needs explaining, I was mainly referring to, and I think Aaron mentioned this in his case too, like the primarily things that, well, Jesus dying, you know, that's pretty easily explained. He was crucified. But the idea of the burial, the empty tomb, and the post-mortem appearances and the origin of the resurrection belief were what I was referring to in that um, context. And so if you're asking the confidence I have, I have extremely high confidence in the appearances. Um, that's because that's about as close to historical evidence as you can get. And that's why it's a consensus among scholars uh, in First Corinthians 15, because Paul says that he saw it and he met with people personally who says they saw so we can at least agree that these people thought they saw something just like people you know who saw the alien abductions at least thought they saw something i don't deny that uh, and then the, the empty tomb is accepted by about 75 percent is what gary habermas would say my bibliography looked about 70 70 75 so that's about right so about two or three quarters to two thirds um, as far as the confidence level but that's why i also gave arguments for it as well i didn't just try to appeal to majorities the entire time so I think we have good historical reasons for affirming both of those things, which I briefly went over in the um, opening. So I think that those are two elements that need explaining. And uh, I think even if those two elements independently were explained, we would still have to explain the origin of the belief, which I think needs an additional element. So I hope that answered your question. Um, yes, yes, it does. I, I'd love to unpack each of those, uh, but we probably don't really have the time for it. And um, the other question I wanted to ask you was about the the criterion of uh, embarrassment, because it's quite an intriguing uh, argument that uh, is used by Christians around uh, about the um, the resurrection. I think the question I'd like to ask, because it seems quite peculiar to Christianity, is there anywhere in non-Christian history assessment where the criterion of embarrassment is used to to justify an historical event that's outside of the Christian tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not completely aware because I mostly just look at the New Testament and that classical literature. But I will also say that those methodologies were developed primarily by critical, uh, well, German scholars in particular, but uh, people like Rudolf Bultmann, and I think they might predate even earlier than that. So uh, these criteria are not generally made by people who themselves are, you know, firmly evangelical. These criteria were developed by people who were originally pretty critical scholars, and that's why there are plenty of scholars like Dale Allison, Geza Vermesh, um, Pinchas Lapid, uh, and several others, D.H. Van Dalen, Jakob Kramer, who are not Christians, but they still affirm things like the empty tomb based on, based partially on the criterion for embarrassment. So um, it's not as if this is a criterion that only Christians use. I don't know if it's used in other disciplines, but I think other disciplines have, I don't know if any other discipline, for example, that uses the criterion of dis, uh, dissimilarity. So some of them are unique to the New Testament, but at the same time, the New Testament's fairly unique as a form of literature. So I think it goes okay. both. Okay. I, I think just as an aside, you, you don't necessarily need to expand on it, but would you understand then why somebody like myself would would see the approach being taken to the Gospels and think, hang on a minute, that's slightly different to the approach that's used in other historical documents. So I'm a little bit suspect here. 
Yeah, I can totally understand that. And I think that while the Gospels are, uh, I mean, Richard Burge has said that it's pretty much a consensus that they are correct Roman biographies. They are somewhat unique in their literary form. I mean, Craig Keener uses the term Christobiography. So I think because the Gospels are fairly unique in their uh, form that you do need fairly unique criteria that might not apply necessarily to uh, other places. But enemy attestation is usually a criteria that's used in other disciplines. Um, if a, if a, two countries are at war and one of the countries mentions like they were they themselves were defeated, that's an embarrassing detail. And I think we have records of stuff like that. So that would be maybe a partial form of enemy attestation would be counting towards criterion of embarrassment uh, in, a, in a different form, perhaps. Okay, thank, thank you. And um, drilling down into that one before, because I have to be honest, I don't fully understand why a lot of weight is being put on uh, the women being the first witnesses of Jesus. Um, because, and, and correct me if, if I'm wrong on here, but my understanding is that in terms of uh, attending to the body afterwards, this is a job that would have been done by the women anyway. So if anyone's going to go to the tomb and see the empty body, it is going to be the women. So from my rudimentary reading of it, the fact that it is women who saw it who are the first witnesses should actually um, be what's expected. So I don't see why that is necessarily an embarrassing fact. So maybe you could try and explain that for me. What have I missed? Yeah, so to go on your point that women primarily care for bodies, the rabbinical literature on this actually says it can be either or. Um, if it's a male body, it can be cared by either men or women, and if it's a woman's body, it can only be cared by women. So for a male body, it could be either or, and in fact, in Mark, that's what we see. Joseph of Arimathea is actually the one who washes the body and wraps it. So it's not universally the case that women were traditionally the ones who cared for the body, and that's not what we see in Mark, and uh, I think the other Jewish texts would imply that. Um, but the idea is that um, I think when you contrast other Gospels, for example, like look at the Gospel of Peter, um, the women come to the tomb later, but before they do, a whole crowd of Jews and Roman guards get in front of the tomb, the stone rolls away, Jesus floats up like an angel, and everyone sees him, and it's a big thing. Um, that's something that would help if you were going to invent a story, right? Because uh, you'd have all these witnesses, allegedly, and all of them were trustworthy. But in Mark's account, when you only have women witnesses, this, uh, in a Jewish context, women generally, and there are some except they, there were exceptions if there were no male witnesses, but generally speaking, they weren't considered to be overly reliable because uh, they were just considered to be inferior intellectually. Uh, Philo, who's a Jewish writer, talks about how the soul has two parts, rational and irrational. He says the irrational part is of a woman. Uh, and Josephus mentions this as well. And uh, lots of other really, I mean, what we would consider today offensive. But we even see the enemies of Christianity actually using this argument against them. Uh, Celsus, who was a, a Greek philosopher who was criticizing the resurrection, criticized it in part because Mary Magdalene was the first one to go to the tomb and see Jesus. And he calls her a half frantic woman, and you expect us to take testimony from her. Uh, and in the 1800s, 1800s and 1700s, uh, the earliest critics of Christianity also used this argument, saying that women are prone to sing spirits and chimaras, and that this actually hurt the reputation of the church. So, um, and this has actually been pointed out by people, even like Christopher Hitchens. He was at the, uh, I think it was the 2008 Freedom Fest. He was talking about if you were going to invent a religion, why would you pick uh, women who, in a Jewish court of law, have had a, about as much chance of being believed as a Muslim woman? So I think there are good elements for that, for thinking why, why take that big of a risk in a story when you could have easily had uh, male disciples of the tomb, which is what we see in Luke and John, uh, 
we had male disciples go to the tomb or in the gospel of Peter where there's aren't any women at the tomb can, originally. Can I, either. can I just do one minute uh, here because I can see Pullman's about to pull the clock yeah. here, <laughs> throw it at us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would I would actually uh, agree with uh, Matt's skepticism, but a couple of things that need to be put out on the record. First of all, there are plenty of uh, historians who do not think that the criterion for embarrassment is a good criterion at all. So there is uh, some uh, debate about that in the scholarship world. And part of the reason is we don't know what was embarrassing. Uh, we look at embarrassment from our perspective, from our lens, but that assumes that we know exactly what the storyteller was trying to tell, the point that he was trying to make. And so, for instance, when it comes to the women uh, one thing that we can see throughout the Jesus story is that he was uh, making a clear statement about the uh, underprivileged and disenfranchised. His whole ministry uh, put women forward. His whole ministry put Gentiles forward. Uh, his whole ministry put uh, the untouchables, uh, such as lepers, forward. And so it would, in fact, actually be somewhat uh, consistent with his story that at the tomb and uh, were the first to herald it. That's not embarrassing if what you were doing is preaching a message that was intended for the underclass and disenfranchised. The message was not going out to the, uh, the lettered Jew uh, of the day. It was going out to a different clientele and it, and it hit its mark. So this is the problem with the criteria of embarrassment. You think it's embarrassing because you're thinking like the Jews of the day. And you're not thinking like the Jesus of the story. Okay, this has been a good discussion, guys. Uh, and since we did go actually quite a bit over on this section, I'm going to cut this next section down of free dialogue, probably down to like 10, 15 minutes. I know it's supposed to be 20, but um, yeah. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Aaron. I'm going to let you open up the free discussion because you've been quiet over there for a little bit. And, you know, this is for anyone, obviously, you know, give each other can respond but um, try not to make sure make sure it's not just a conversation between one of you guys and one of the skeptics make sure there's you know everyone's involved yeah okay yeah i was like i don't know gonna ask me a question but that's okay <laughs> i uh, apologize for that i almost Aaron. jumped in and helped I, I i'll give a um i think caleb handled it really cleanly like, he gave a lot of examples on why it, it just wouldn't make sense to if you were making the story up is, is the point if like why would you put women in there now you can find, you can explain away, like make up an explanation, or you can try to reason yourself into an explanation on why they would do that. But the, the question is like, if we're trying to be as rational as we can, what would be more likely if they were actually just trying to come up with a story? Would it be better served by male witnesses? And as far as I'm aware, mo most of the scholars that actually published on this that's what they say. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe that. Well, I think I think the why. scholars are I think the scholars are idiots and self-serving sometimes. Hey, yeah, and that's, I, that's and your I right to like believe some it. Of the scholars. You, can, you can believe that if you want. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's all. That's all good. Uh, I'm not saying you have to believe it. I mean, well, I've had the, I've had the scholars on the show. I, I I like them very much. Uh, one of my favorite New Testament scholars is Greg Keener, uh, and uh, I hope to uh, talk to him again at some point. But I can I can show you that there is a certain blindsidedness. Uh, with apologists who are especially trying to come up with bullet points oh, uh, you to know, say I, I think that you're right. women. Yeah, totally. Uh, I you think know, you're right. I think blindsidedness goes on both sides, for sure. It's right. like, I, you can be blindsided by just trying to not believe it and come up with anything you need to. So like, I, the I totally get that. The story of Jesus' ministry, he's not He's not trying to convert the leaders of the Jews, and he did not. Look at who, look at who believed and who didn't. He spent his time in the countryside with the Hills folks. 
uh, with the downtrodden, uh, with the underclassed and underserved. This this is the brunt of the best part of his ministry. Uh, and so it, it actually does make perfect sense when you put yourself uh, in that mindset uh, that it's the women who would be there. It was the women who were with him the whole time. That whole His whole ministry was scandalous uh, for that day. And you can say, well, you know, why... You, why? Why would they? Why would he have women in his ministry at all? But he did, um, because he wasn't talking to the Jewish elite. Uh, he was. He was talking to the underclass, and there he was saying, "Look, in in the kingdom, women have a place, and lepers have a place, and Gentiles have a place, and all of the people who have been kicked uh, by the power elite have a place in my kingdom." And that that is, I think. A very important part of this message, and so it is an important scene when it's a woman uh, who gives the message. Now, once again, you don't have to accept that interpretation, but this is why the criterion of embarrassment is itself an embarrassing criterion because uh, you're using your own judgment to decide what is embarrassing, as opposed to uh, you know letting the story tell itself. And then there are people with different opinions on what would be embarrassing and what isn't. So I don't think it's a very useful criterion. So it, it, we didn't spell out too clearly. So anyone listening that might not be certain, the criteria of embarrassment is just saying that if, if some reported fact of history would at least hypothetically be embarrassing to the people who are trying to make the case, it's it reduces the likelihood. It's not certain, but it reduces the likelihood that they would just make that event up when if they were going to make it up, they could add a more credible part of the story. You just have to have you have to have a pretty good understanding of what it is the storyteller is trying to tell as to whether it's embarrassing or not. Uh, an example of a criterion of embarrassment would be the uh, idiot disciples who are co constantly tripping over their their feet, so to speak, bickering about power, uh, being faithless and so forth. People will say, you see, that's very embarrassing. If that wasn't true, they would have surely told the story differently. And I would say, have you ever read a novel? <laughs> have you ever read a hero story? There has to be uh, a uh, in in this hero's journey. Uh, a place where the hero is an idiot uh, so that they can be uh, a hero later. They don't start off as heroes. They start off as idiots. Uh, and that's that's where the drama is. That's where the turn is. That's where the twist is. You, you learn and you grow. And so I don't find uh, the stories uh, of the idiot disciples uh, problematic or embarrassing at all as a, as a storyteller, as a writer. This is important. <laughs> it's an important feature of writing. Well, so to... Uh... To Matthew's earlier question, it's not that it's so it's like so much weight depends on this specific criteria and that specific fact. I, like that's how you asked it. It's just it's just a small part of the puzzle because the the women being the discoverers is multiply and independently attested. So that's like the more like I'd say the criteria of is much lower on like the sort of hierarchy of criteria. But it just it it if you accept it, I mean if you want to say what David said, if you can just disregard. It. But like let's say someone says, yeah, I can see how that could be. That could increase the probability. It just kind of adds that extra layer, uh, however negligible it might be. But uh, if so, if we're just sort of an open talk right now, and no, there's no real necessary Q and A, uh, do you believe whoever wants to answer this that it must be compelling to believe in order for it to be rational? I think you, David, said earlier it doesn't necessarily have to be, but I want to make sure I'm clear on what you were saying that. Well, I think the, that it should be compelling to the person who believes it, uh, but not every 
set of evidences is compelling to everyone. And so it would not be rational, for instance, if you chose to believe something that wasn't particularly compelling to you. Uh, so uh, whether you find the evidence compelling is is kind of an individual thing. Um, so it, it would need to be certainly more compelling for me uh, to believe it, because like I said, I think there's more, I think there's better evidence for alien uh, abductions, and I don't believe any of those. <laughs> I believe there's better, resurre uh, better resurrection evidence for the resurrections of Satya Sai Baba, and I don't believe any of those. Uh, so it has to be better than that. <laughs> and, but that said, there are millions of people who do, uh, and I don't think they're crazy. Okay, you know, it's interesting, as far as we're talking, just like having our dialogue in my kind of work that I do on my channel, I I'm purely about like so what I call rational permission. And I think it meets mm. that, but I never conceded that it's, it's compelling in a very broad sense that a lot of maybe more empirical things might be, but I don't think it needs to be. So that that's an approach I take. And so at least in this very simple, ver simplified version of our dialogue, you and I are good. Like we, we don't have a lot more to talk about, though we could get into details, but um, oh, you, you just, say just just step over to my side over here on the SNS. We'll find something to talk about, my friend. Oh, I'm sure we will. Like, <laughs> don't, you, like don't you worry about it. <laughs> I, I, when I say it's not compelling, I'm being very specific with what I mean. Because obviously, yeah. you're right. Different people are compelled by different things. But I think we can understand when I say, and you know, I'm speaking very generally about something that's very broadly compelling. That like you'd have to be fairly irrational not to believe. Um, so yeah, like, I don't think any of this is you're irrational if you don't believe it or irrational if you do believe it. I think it's in that zone where, you know, there is enough tantalizing pieces there so that rational people could believe it. Yes. Uh, now, I don't tend to trust uh, some of the judgment of some of the rational people who believe it because I think they're I think they're doing it wrong <laughs> but but that's because of my own makeup and when i look at it i think yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna devote my life to something like that you've got to want to believe it i think that part of part of what makes the evidence compelling to some is just the psychological uh uh setup where you you need to want to believe it and then it becomes excuse me more believable uh, but even the people who believe it very strongly, you know, you can follow and track them and, uh, they get to a point in life where they kind of doubt it and then they don't believe it. And so even as compelling as they find it, it's still not strong enough to fully stick, uh, in the way that say our belief in gravity fully sticks. Well, you know, there's, there's never a morning when yeah. I wake up wondering if gravity is going to work. I mean, there's several mornings where Einstein was not sure if gravity was a force, uh, which led to a much better theory that today that explains a lot more. But that's not – I actually – I think you're pretty much – I'll even agree with your statement that you have to want to believe it, though I think the details of why we think that are probably different. Um, I actually think hey that's guys, true, let, not only in the resurrection. Let, let's make sure we're also including Caleb and uh, Matt in the discussion as well. Yes, Can I just sure. say Thank that you. I, I – um... I'm on the same page with terms with rationality. I, I just detest it. If I see somebody suggesting that one side's rational and the other side is irrational, it can't be boiled down to that kind of simplicity. And there can be multiple reasons for somebody rationally 
accepting a proposition. Let me just pick a pluck one out of the air. You mentioned somebody else who's in a similar scenario to me where they're uh, a non-believing former believer in a marriage where there is still a believer. And they decided that it was they really should go back to church and and make an effort to to believe again even though they they can't justify it because it will make a difference to their marriage i would say fine that's a rational position to take uh, go for it me too caleb do you believe in alien uh, alien abductions just curious uh i have not looked into them enough but uh currently i don't think that there's an alien alien abduction that can be explained um by anything other than either psychological expectation because many people who do that go to a therapist and they have hypnotherapy uh, hypnotic therapy and they almost insert and uh there's a couple of good documentaries on this they almost insert thoughts into them and make them re-remember things that they didn't actually happen so inserting false memories and stuff like that but that, that uh, happens when people talk about seeing jesus in a dream or going to heaven oh, sure, okay. and coming yeah. back i mean so i mean you can yeah yeah, we agree. You know, if that's a falsification, you can do that for for Christianity too. Well, we would agree just curious. It's false that Jesus came to him in a dream, probably. So, <laughs> well, so I mean, I was just curious because alien abduction is one of those things that's been out there ever since I've been alive. Uh, I'm I'm 50, uh, so uh, I've uh, I've been around in a lot of the heyday of this um, alien abduction nonsense. Uh, but you know, I was a kid when it was very very popular, and so. Uh, I just found it very interesting, and it's something that I wanted to believe in. Um, I really wanted to believe in it, and um, I just couldn't. And I'm I'm always curious why it is people don't believe it, especially Christians, uh, when you look at the type, the similarities of the type of evidence. I mean, I can I can take a a one hour Christian presentation. Um, own evidences for the resurrection. And I can just take each one of those points and move it over to alien abduction and make them make the bullet points bigger because there's better evidence for each one of them there. But the Christian would say, oh no, that's 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 crazy talk. And I I, I just think there has to be a better effort, you know, to pr- show that one is crazy and the other is rational. Um, and I haven't seen it. So I'm I'm always curious uh oh, the difference. So- I can get, I can at least answer for myself uh, what I think the rationale is if you want me to. Sure, knock yourself out. Okay, because I know that was a little and, more. And by the way, Palman, we are not dominating the conversation. It's just that these two don't want to talk on my show. If you want to talk, <laughs> you just punch someone in the face and then you talk. <laughs> so I don't well, know. You don't let people escape too easy, David. No, he doesn't. You I'm, make them. You make them talk. <laughs> I I'd like to uh, jump in and. Uh, ask an open question either Caleb or, or Aaron it's not directed at any either specific either one of you specifically but it's about the going back to the whole it, explaining the the narrative so and again this is the impression that I've got from what's been said so if I've jumped to the wrong conclusion please uh, please correct me but it sounds like when you're saying that when non-believers like uh, myself and David need to explain the the whole resurrection narrative or even let's start at the crucifixion then then the resurrection and the appearances that we somehow have this position where the whole of that story was invented from scratch in one sitting is is that what you think that that we believe or are you a bit more nuanced than that uh i, I think it's the way you phrase the question no I, I think i was more asking 
um, well, like, do you accept some of the, some of the facts that I laid out and do you personally have an explanation for why? Uh, and when I say facts, of course, I mean historically, so I don't mean like mathematically we can, you know, scientifically verify. So I was like, do you think that there was an empty tomb? Do you think that people did sincerely believe they saw Jesus? Um, stuff like that. So I think that's what I was uh, inferring when I was asking about explaining the facts. Because, yes, I do think people see alien abductions, but I also gave a reason as to why I think that is. I think it was because it was in a time and a culture where aliens were extremely popular in media and because uh, a lot of psychological expectation, as well as a lot of time during the Cold War when uh, airplanes and stuff would have been mistaken for UFOs and so forth. So I can at least give an explanation for why I think a certain phenomena uh, arose. All right, Matt, I'm going to let you gay. respond to that, and then we're going we're, we're um, to go over to uh, closing statements after that. Uh, okay, I, I'm I'm not really sure uh, I understood how that met with my question, so maybe there's may, maybe the mismatch is my fault. So I apologise. Um, but it was about the specifically about the gospel narrative of the the crucifixion, resurrection, and appearances. For people that don't believe or don't accept any of that, um, any of the supernatural parts of that, then so that would include the empty tomb. What do you think they're they're proposing? Do you th because Somebody said at, at one point about that being written, nobody would have just made all of that up. Do you think that that story would have been, is being proposed that it was written down in one sitting as fiction? Do, are you saying, do I think that you think that or do other people? Yes. Think? I don't, well, I don't try to read mine, so I'm not trying to say that you think a certain way or not. I, okay. That's why I was trying to ask. I don't, I'm not trying to make a judgment of you think okay. this. But I, you're, you're again, what was that? Um, yeah, it's just that sometimes the impression I get when ha when having this kind of conversation is sometimes it appears that the assumption is that let's just use myself as an example, but it could be any atheist that we think that or I'm proposing that that entire narrative was written as is in one sitting, and I don't endorse that position uh, at all. I don't think I I ever have. For me, it's more like a much an evolved story that that progressed over many years or even decades. Same. Uh, I, I don't think anybody really proposes that it was written in, in one sitting, in one go. And it's just sometimes the, the questions give the impression that that's what's expected of my belief. So I, I just wanted to to sort of like clear up that clarification, if that makes sense. Yes, that does make sense. And I don't know how much time we have left, so I, I'll try to keep it brief. But... Yeah, yeah, it's been a good conversation. Oh, can I keep going? Oh, sorry, I go ahead. Finish. I, I thought you were wrapping up. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's what I was trying to emphasize in my opening with um, what's why multiple attestation is important, why, yes, we have the Gospels, but we have Paul, who's probably a better source because he's much earlier and we, he had contact with people who themselves knew Jesus. So he's definitely a better source. But when Paul affirms many of the same things that line up with the Gospels, uh, and Paul is, you know, writing the creed he cites, I think, is like a few months to two to three years max, and he got that from people who personally saw it. Um, that is like probably good evidence. So uh, historically speaking, at least from the from the criteria laid out. So when you have all that cumulatively, you know, embarrassment by itself might not be reason. But when you add embarrassment with multiple attestation, with falsifiability, with lack of uh, embellishment, et cetera, all of those, then I think it becomes a more interesting case. And uh, that's why I was trying to emphasize that we have multiple sources and not just one source that someone wrote down. Uh, I know that you weren't saying that that someone wrote down, you know, 40 years later, you're, I think what you were proposing was more of like, it developed orally through tradition, like yeah. a telephone game almost. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying that Paul is uh, first, Paul got his information firsthand and it wasn't being passed down through 10 people for God to him. Right. 
And the fact that the sources we have line up with a lot of what he says, I think, only helps that case. So, and I also don't know if it's analogous to compare ancient oral traditions with today because they had much better memories than we do because most of them couldn't write anyway. But uh, yeah, so I think there's just a lot of different points. But I really appreciate this discussion. Oh, I also think all right, yeah. That, oh, just just thirty seconds here. I also think that um, it's interesting what Paul thought resurrection was. So if you're saying that Paul is a better source, uh, Paul uh, said that you know Jesus appeared to Peter and the James and the apostles and the five hundred in the same way that he appeared to him. Well, how did Jesus appear to Paul in a vision? Uh, and so it's it's unclear exactly what Paul thought about um, resurrection uh, at that time. So I'm not I'm not sure that uh, it's such a good idea for the Christian to hang hang the the best source of resurrection on Paul or not. Yeah, real right, fast. Guys. Sorry. Well, give me like 20 seconds, David. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Real fast. Just to to go on that point, Paul does say that, but he also says, "Last of all, he appeared to me." But he also says he had visions later on in life and dreams. So it's interesting why Paul says that was the last appearance, even though he talks about other people in Acts seeing visions of Jesus and people in the church having visions of Jesus. And yet he doesn't seem to count those. So I think that there is a clear distinction. And even if you so look at So are you Acts, saying that Jesus bodily appeared to Paul? Well, I because think you, Acts, would, you would be just about alone in that opinion. I don't think Paul touched Jesus like Thomas did. No, but you even in Acts... You think that Jesus appeared bodily to Paul? What do you mean by bodily? I mean bodily in the same way appeared to the apostles. Don't don't hedge. Did he appear bodily to Paul or not? Or was it well, different? Because so Paul thought it was the same with the rest of them. But he did think it was different than other visions. But as I was saying, it was a post-ascension appearance. But in Acts, you do get other people seeing it. So even though Paul is blinded, the other people either hear a voice or see a light. So I don't think it was all intramental. So even then, you still have extramental material. So that's what I would think Paul's would be, would be in extra mental appearance of a ball of light, perhaps, of a vision, but I don't think it was completely subjective. So I'll end on that note. All right, guys. Yeah, I'm going to wind it down there. Uh, we're going to go to four-minute closing statements. It's going to take the same, um, well, they'll be in the same order that the opening statements were, so it'll be uh, Caleb, Aaron, David, Matt, all right? And uh, we'll start with you, Caleb. All right, yeah, so this was a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciate all the speakers. I think they made some very good points uh, and very interesting considerations to have. So yeah, again, to summarize the case, I presented an argument for uh, using certain criteria that we have good reasons to believe that uh, people believe Jesus had risen from the dead. And I think in order to explain why they would believe that, um, the idea that the tomb really was empty and the idea that there were appearances is the best explanation because any uh, theory lacking either of those doesn't really explain why that belief arose to begin with. And so uh, I think we have good historical reasons for saying that. And I think Aaron did a good job of looking at the analytical side of that. And so, um, again, I will say I don't think people are irrational for disbelieving in the resurrection. And so I perfectly understand where David is um, coming from, as well as Matthew. And I also believe the Christian faith is in large parts about personal experience. And uh, I know David Palman's not going to be happy for me saying that. But Although I do have an evidence-based point of view, I think uh, my experience as well with uh, my faith has helped uh, reinforce that as well. And so I think that that's an important part. I don't think anyone will accept it outside of that uh, 
with some exceptions, perhaps. But I do think the evidence is good enough to persuade people. Even um, a scholar like uh, Pinchas Lapide, who was not a Christian, believed that Jesus was raised from the dead based on the evidence. Um, he had an interesting interpretation of that, but he still remained not a Christian despite that. So it is not just conservative scholars who are saying things like this. So uh, I would like to end it on that and to say that I think that uh, we do have pretty sufficient evidence overall. So thank you to all the speakers who came out today. All right. Well, I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, it doesn't have to always be like a perfect harmony of like everyone speaks at the right amount of time. Because I think we enjoyed the, the conversation and mostly for the audience. Uh, there's probably a lot of different points that we went on. We went down different trails. There's a few questions left unanswered because of time constraints and other, you know, making sure we're not talking over each other, which I thought we all did a pretty good job on. Um, so I'll start by just answering a question that was out there for me that we didn't get a chance to in, in the cross-examination which is the difference qualitatively in alien abductions and the eyewitness testimonies of those and the conclusion that aliens exist and abducted the people, comparing that to the eyewitness testimony of the appearances of Christ, inferring that Jesus actually was bodily raised from the dead. Because this is meant, I think, so far, as, as far as the facts were laying out in a case to infer that Jesus rose from the dead rationally, this is just meant to explain the appearances. It doesn't explain any of the other facts. So with that in mind, I'm going to kind of dial it back and get more into the background of it and why I think they are qualitatively different. The case with aliens and our understanding of the natural world of physics and our, our, the entire scope of science is there are certain expectations given the uniformity of nature that we have that we're saying based on what we do know that we would expect to be real and observable that are absent in the case of, a, of alien abductions. Now, any person can obviously craft a theory that is completely impenetrable and explain the way out of it. But at that point, they're getting outside that framework of expectations if we're being serious with the actual case of extraterrestrial life. In the case of the resurrection of Jesus, the expectation of, the, of that sort of uniformity with something like if God actually existed, if that's a part of the entire propositional case, God being an actual free agent, that expectation is not there with the case that I presented of it being merely rational. If you have some, if you have an entity like God, that's actually real in the background and God knows is supposed to be omniscient and knows all these different things. Of course, he's free to make the decisions he wants on how he presents these things to different people. If it's the case that someone doesn't find it rational to believe, or they need it to be compelling, then there's really no reason to expect that God would do that. You would have to sort of have your own, I guess, anti-theodicy that says God needs to do it this way because my concept of all goodness says he does. The point is that if aliens are real and they obey to some degree our understanding of the laws of physics, if we're going to sit here and believe that, which I think we all do, the fact that we have expectations with them, I think, is a qualitative difference than saying that we should have the same kind of expectations if something like God exists, which is not a part of the natural world, is not embedded in some higher reality that imposes itself upon him. And I think while that's very technical, that is a meaningful qualitative difference. And um, I guess I could end on that. The main, the main point is, if I still have a minute left or so, is that we're saying that there are historical facts, specifically when the empty tomb is said to be supernatural, it's not. The empty tomb on its own is not a supernatural fact. The only supernatural fact that we would infer is Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Okay. Uh, 
three things really quick. Um, your your statement there, um, you know, it it doesn't break any expectations as long as God is real. So I mean, basically, you're saying, but if magic is real, then it's then I'm okay, uh, right? I'm not I'm not special pleading now because magic's real, <laughs> uh, and I could simply say, well, you know, if aliens are real and so far advanced that they are able to come here and abduct people through you know, transporter beams or whatever, uh, then they uh, know some elements about the laws of physics that we don't. Uh, and no scientist claims to understand all of the laws of physics per perfectly. So we can we can both create, uh, you know, big holes that allow us to escape um, that uh, that particular problem. Uh, two, John Fromm. Uh, everyone knows who John Fromm is. If you don't, uh, look him up. John Fromm sounds, uh, spells the way it sounds. Uh, the cargo cults were religious cults that uh, came to be very shortly <laughs> after the events that brought them uh, about. And they uh, basically, they, they went from real events to legends to, to religious fact. Uh, and there are people to this day uh, who still uh, worship in the cargo cults. Uh, it's not that unlike uh, the Jesus stories. Uh, the difference is the Jesus stories uh, took, oh, two, three hundred years to, to win out, and they had the help of a, a major world power to do it. The cargo cults uh, are not that old and so far do not have the help of a major world power. But, you know, I could imagine that uh, three, four hundred years in the future, it could be a, a very big thing. Uh, not I don't find um, any of that very convincing. Finally, uh, I think the main point uh, in this discussion, and if uh, in case I forget to say it, thank you for having me on the show. It has been a very delightful uh, conversation. I appreciate all of the uh, uh, participants, uh, Matt, you were excellent in this format. Uh, you really should do more of it. Um, that said, uh, I think my main point that I want to, uh, leave with is, uh, Jesus, it seems, uh, in the stories, uh, the writers of the stories about Jesus' resurrection went out of the way to make people doubt. Uh, so much doubt was in the stories uh, that Jesus uh, had to say to uh, Philip, I think it was Philip, it is better to believe without seeing than to believe um, because you saw it's Thomas, actually. That was Thomas, wasn't it? Uh, you only believe because you uh, now saw the, the wounds, but better for those, he says later, who would believe without uh, the, the evidence, essentially. And I think that this is something that was probably added into the text because the uh, followers of Jesus knew that they didn't have any evidence. And so they had to put the words uh, on Jesus' lips that he said, you know what, you don't need any. <laughs> it's, it's better if you don't have any. Um, uh, they, they went out of their way uh, to make us doubt. Uh, they, they made him shape, change his shape uh, or, or his appearance. They clouded the eyes of disciples. Uh, did a number of things. Uh, finally, the Jews of that region, because Jesus is a Jew um, and ultimately killed in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the big city of the day. I don't know what the population was, but this is where the big events were supposed to happen. Uh, what did Jesus do 
to make the population of Jews believe? Well, did he go back before the people who killed him and say, here I am, you did a lousy job? Did he go back to the Sanhedrin? Did he go to Rome? Uh, did he walk the streets of Jerusalem and say, hey, you remember me uh, holding the cross aloft? Did he do any of that? No, he didn't do any of that. Uh, and so to this day, uh, Orthodox Jews don't believe he rose. <laughs> and so, uh, again, he, he seems to have uh, done a lot, uh, everything in his power to make sure that the maximum number of people would not believe, um, as opposed to the maximum number of people believe. And so I just find myself in that group of people who does not believe. And I think that he wanted a certain group not to believe. Uh, why do they not hear me? Well, he says, my sheep hear my voice. Um, why do you speak in parables? <laughs> lest they, lest they uh, understand and believe. There were certain people he didn't want to believe. These things are sprinkled into the gospel. And so I would say that we are here now in a world where many people don't believe. And I feel like it is perfectly rational for me to be one of those people who don't. I guess it's my turn. Yes, sir. Oh, well, thank you for that personal endorsement, David. Um, I don't know how to take it, but we'll we'll see. Thank you for the welcome, gentlemen. It's been a great conversation. I've got another story for my closing comments. In in the late nineteen seventies, in uh, in Zambia, neighbour of the country that was at that time called Rhodesia, later became Zimbabwe. A farm was was raided and kidnapped, and uh, three people were kidnapped by forces under the control of Joshua and Como. And um, those three people, two of them were British and one of them was an Australian. And um, it was looking like it was going to become an international incident because obviously uh, foreigners were, were kidnapped by a foreign nation in a, in a foreign nation, if you see what I mean. And... Um, Army and police were involved, and later that day, after being severely maltreated, beaten, beaten terribly, uh, the the three were were released. I, I won't. I'll spare you all the all the gory details. Within ten years of that event, a book was written by the uh, people who owned the farm, and obviously, as would happen, it included some of the story of that event. Some of the facts that were reported in that book within 10 years of that event were wrong. The book didn't retell the event absolutely accurately. It missed out some events. It told some events uh, with um, a sprinkling of uh, factuality and it involved, whether intentionally or not, some fictions. 30 years after that event, the, the woman involved, um, I was at her funeral and I was at her funeral because she's my mother. And the minister stood up and talked and mentioned this event. And in his telling of the story, and I have no idea where he got his narrative from, he said that there was a miracle involved. And the miracle was that the church had got together to pray, having heard the news that these people had been kidnapped. That's not true. And they prayed in a massive, great big prayer meeting. And that's not true either. And there was a clap of thunder. That's not true. Which scared the kidnappers. That's not true. And they immediately released them. That's not true. So stories can evolve. A very normal event 
can, within a lifetime, evolve into a story that involves uh, the miraculous. It can happen, and it does happen. And so when I read the gospel narratives, that's what I see. I see a story that has got elements in it that look like and feel like and read like, to me at least, like they have evolved over retellings to land at where they are now. Now, I'm not going to make any judgment about what's true and what isn't true, and I'm certainly not going to make any judgment on the motives behind what might not be untrue. I just don't have the information to to make that judgment, so I, I abstain from that judgment. But it does read to me like a story that's evolved. So my suggestion is that I can't believe the supernatural accounts in that story because of how those events read to me. So to go right back to the very beginning, is there evidence of, of a resurrection? Yes, for the reasons I've already said it, it says so and it's got there and outed. Can I accept it? Unfortunately, no, I can't, because as I've just said, the story reads to me like an evolved story. Thank you for the time, gentlemen. I've enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed each and every one of you coming on today. Thank you for uh, bearing with me as I try to learn how to make these shows a little bit more professional. Um, that's what I'm working on. So that's what we're doing today, and that's what what I've you been. You can start by not inviting me. <laughs> nah, David. You know, you know, I got nothing but love for you, brother. Um, but you know what? Uh, I have this really interesting story myself. I, I mean, just listening to uh, Matthew's story there at the end, uh, it has to do with like, you know, different cultures have what they call, uh, I think it's called high, uh, they're, I can't, I can't remember all, but anyways, they're better at, at memorizing, uh, uh, they're, they're high, high oral culture. They have, they have a better uh, thing at remembering. But the cool thing was, is I'm working with this guy. And we're talking about uh, civilization and, and oral culture. And he gets this big, you know, this big expression on his face, like his eyes widen up. He's like, hey, I know somebody that does this today. In my country, we have an orator that tells our histories. And he can cite you six books for Vedum because he has to – he constantly – that's his job. He constantly goes back and, and, and basically makes a song out of the story. Now, I mean, you can look in how different ways of how people uh, memorize things and, and remembering it through song, you know, making a song out of it is one of those ways, which is pretty cool. And I was like, no way. There's, there, the people don't do that today. And sure enough, he pulled up this YouTube guy. He, I think my friend's from Kyrgyzstan. Uh, he pulls up this guy, and this guy's just doing his thing. And it was actually really cool. So if y'all guys ever get a chance to maybe look into that, that's pretty cool. But it just kind of reminded me, so I wanted to, like, uh, you know, at least put it out there. But uh, yeah, guys, again, Matthew, you, you know, you, you're you're welcome on the show anytime as, you know, as well as David. And we love having us and us family here. Uh, we're all part of the us and us family here. So, <laughs> you know, as, as far as me, you and David. So uh, we love having you guys on uh, Caleb and, and Aaron. It was it was a great talk for you guys, man. We love having you on here too, uh, you know, on PRA. And, and again, we're going to have to get that that debate going with uh, Aaron and, and Paulman over here and uh, have Caleb help host it with me. So we still got that, uh, that in, that in the uh, back burner right now, but 
it's still going to happen. But uh, next week, guys, we should be uh, ready to go with uh, A Matter of Faith. We're going to critique that that terrible movie. Uh, I did I did watch it again this week, and I was there is a climax to the story. And dude, I, I I was watching it, and the climax is the debate, right? So these guys are getting ready to debate their creation versus evolution. And next thing you know, I woke up and the movie's off. I'd fall asleep. <laughs> you can tell how bad this movie is, but you know. Because I fell asleep during the best part of the movie. Uh, it is that bad. And we're going to critique it because that's what we do on PR yeah. Raw. And we're going to have fun with it. So with that, Dave, you've got anything I, yeah, to say. I want to plug. Uh, Dave, I go ahead. I want to plug um, uh, the uh, SNS Superhero Show. The Uh-oh. first annual Superhero Show. Don't write me. I know there's no such thing as first annual. <laughs> it's only second you second annual. I, I get it, but I'm calling it the first annual superhero show. Uh it's a follow-up uh to our sci-fi show. Uh yours truly will be there along with uh Russell. Uh Matt uh will be there. Uh and You're I didn't know me back. <laughs> I didn't didn't know any of these other guys, uh, or else they would have probably been there too. Um it's going to be a very fun cast of, dare I say, characters, and um, the the rules and criteria for the show is already going out. We're going to record this show next week. It's going to probably come out during the Christmas weekend so that people can have something fun to listen to. It's going to go way too long. Uh, already, it is going off the rails. I've given some clear instructions and already these jerks are getting back to me with, hey, uh, can I exchange number seven for number three and do this <laughs> instead of... Screw you guys. The, the rules are the rules. Um, anyway, a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't hit them with the um, rest of the discussion points yet. But uh, guys, tune in for that. It's going uh, to be very enjoyable. Yes, sir. Uh, David, you got you got any last words, parting words here? Uh, I don't think so. Close us out, all. all right. Close us out. All right. Yep. So it was a great debate. Thanks again, everyone, for participating. Uh, This has been Proselytize or Apostatize, and we will catch you next time.